This is all magic that has existed in WebEx and Skype and everyone else. Like everyone's doing this. So I got, I'm lucky I get to just go to the IETF and, and read the plain text and I'm done. You've kind of unlocked this though, really, for the Go community, because even if I just implemented the bit I needed, this isn't the kind of problem that you really have a chance in hell, really, of being able to <laughs> just build and each person solve it. It's not like a router. Yeah, no, and it's fun because different companies have come and different individuals have come and brought like their little improvements. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Do not underestimate the power of the independent open cloud for developers. Yes, I'm talking about Linode. Linode is our cloud of choice and it's the home of Changelog.com. What we love most about Linode is their independence and their commitment to open cloud. Open cloud means being unencumbered by outside investment and maximizing value for the community, not shareholders. And that's exactly what Linode represents. No vendor lock-in, open at every layer. If you want to learn more, head to linode.com slash open. Again, linode.com slash open. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. In the queue for the Go Time feed, we have shows on immediate mode GUIs, Black Hat Go, challenges of distributed messaging systems, and more. Subscribe today at changelog.com/slash go time or in your favorite podcast app. Just search for Go Time, you'll find us. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Raya. Today we're talking about real-time communication, uh, specifically WebRTC, those kinds of things, how we can get peer-to-peer secure communication going in Go. And as usual, I'm joined by a cohort of wonderful and strange people. Firstly, calm down everyone, it's only Yana B. Dogan. Hello, Yana. Hello, hi. Welcome back. Yeah, good to see you again. Yeah, you too. Welcome back. Don't worry. It's not just, uh, you don't just have to tolerate me. You also have to tolerate John Calhoun. Hello, John. <laughs> wow. What an intro. It's a nice one, isn't it? Well, it's different. <laughs> you have to tolerate me. That That's what I'm here for. <laughs> um, and we're also joined uh, by a special guest today, Sean Dubois. You, Sean, you founded the Pion Project. Is that right? Yeah, and, and thank you for having me. Yeah, so that's I kind of it's it's grown organically. I wouldn't really say found. I you know committed fifty lines of Go code, and I had no idea where it would go. But yeah, wow. that's that's what my life has been for the past two and a half years now. Yeah, so we'll get more onto that later, talking about what that project is. But maybe we could start with for anybody not familiar with WebRTC, what we're really talking about, and these sorts of, what what you can do with these kinds of technologies. Maybe you could give us a bit of an overview. Yeah, so. If you are a user of WebRTC, what you're probably used to is, hey, I, I have two web browsers and I want to send video between them. You want to build like a conferencing Roam application. And that's like the common use case. And that's what like first people start with. But really the technology underneath is so incredibly flexible and does so many things that you can build all these different use cases. So I don't know if you've, if you've seen like the Google Stadia's over WebRTC. People are doing WebTorrent over WebRTC. So you can like download torrents in your browser. And you can do another one is like co-streaming. So you'll see like a lot of people that will like stream videos together. Like they'll perfectly sync up and like distribute via WebRTC. So really what the magic behind that is, the first is like the peer-to-peerness. So WebRTC, it allows two people to distribute like a list of their known addresses. So I like give you like what my local IP address is or what my public IP address is. And then we exchange this list and then we find the best way to talk to each other. And that's like the really cool magic behind it. So instead of me and you, like most people, they think like, oh, I want to exchange a file. I have to upload it to S3 and then I download it. But with WebRTC, we exchange our list of peers and then we connect directly to each other via this really cool thing called that traversal, where you both like punch temporary holes 
in your public IP so you can talk to each other. And so if you if anyone gets a chance and you're Googling and following along, the first thing to look up is Natraversal to get you in down this rabbit hole of RTC. That's awesome. And is it just one-to-one communication or can you do one-to-many or many-to-many? Yeah, so it's just one-to-one and that's a super interesting rabbit hole to go down. So let's say me and you establish our one-to-one communication, but most of the time what we have is like a conference call, like you want to talk to multiple people. So mm. then you end up doing a one-to-one with every person in your conference room. And then you, the, everyone does all these one-to-ones. So if you have four people, you're uploading your video three times because you're doing mm. like this mesh topology. And so that's like the value add of a lot of services like Zoom and Hangouts. They run where you upload your video once to them and then they fan out. Mm. But that also adds now because you upload once to them, they have to decrypt your video and then they fan it out. And so like, essentially, you're in a WebRTC call, but with a WebRTC peer that's running up in the cloud and like your browser just thinks it's talking to someone, but really it's like this, this heavyweight server running the cloud that's simulating WebRTC connections. I see. Yeah. And so how does WebRTC relate to protocols that we are more familiar with, like TCP and HTTP? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so WebRTC, everything runs over UDP. And it's super important that it happens for, for two reasons. One is the NAT traversal attributes of it. So if like me and you both want to connect to each other, we can't really do NAT traversal via TCP. Like with TCP, like you give, you know, you it's like this one stateful connection. So how, like if me and you are both inside our private networks, how do we establish like a, a hole to go through? So like with, with UDP, what you do is you send one packet out to a, what they call a stun server. And then that stun server responds and that establishes like a temporary hole. So if anyone sends in on port 53,000, there's a temporary hole where 53,000 maps to your computer. Mm-hmm. Like if you ever like set up your Xbox back in the day and remember having to do port forwarding and stuff like that, this is basically, it's like automatic port forwarding. Right. So first you get that automatic port forwarding with UDP. And the other thing is an attribute of live video. So if I'm trying to watch a live video, And you've probably seen this with Netflix, how it will flip the quality on the fly. Mm. And so what that called is HLS, where they will upload a video in like four different qualities and you download it via HTTP. Instead, what WebRTC does is me and you are communicating real time on the quality of the video. So I will will flip between resolutions and bit rates on the fly because we have this duplex communication. And that's super, super powerful because now I can pick like, what's the best quality for us for us to have this call in? And like, mm-hmm. for example, if someone else gets on your network and the network quality goes down, I can fluctuate on the fly. So would it tell me to start sending it at a lower resolution? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I send you statistics like these are this is the amount of packets you sent me and, and UDP, since it does the drops automatically, it says, hey, you know, Matt sent me 500 packets, but I only got 470. Like you say, okay, I'm going to lower my boot rate a little bit until I can get to a good quality of loss. So it has this like really cool um, congestion control. And the other cool thing is since the congestion control isn't built into the protocol, like TCP, you can decide on what you want. Like I can say, okay, I'll do five seconds of latency because I want perfect picture, or I want to do 200 milliseconds because I'm having a live call. Like there's just all these cool things you can do with WebRTC because you get this flexibility. So uh, is WebRTC just a protocol or does it also contain some of the like utilities like this type of like, like I mean, some encoders for video and so on? Mm-hmm. Because you mentioned that like you can switch back and forth between different qualities. I wonder like mm-hmm. if there's any utilities out there. Yeah, so WebRTC itself, it's basically a bundling of all these existing protocols that have been around since the 90s. Like if you go look up um, ICE and RTP and SCTP, like these are things that have been around and WebRTC bundled it up. So these, you can like bridge with existing things, but then it's kind of left up to the user to implement it. So like you can build a WebRTC implementation if you, you know, can parse RTP and you can send H.264. It's kind of like a, a soup. So like there's a couple implementations of WebRTC out there. Like there's, it's like, there's these RFCs that define how it works, but then you go and like you can grab um, like Python has an implementation, Go has an implementation. There's a C++ implementation by Google, and yeah, and then they all and the cool thing is they all work interchangeably, and people are building stuff with them. And Python has a Go implementation of WebRTC, right? Yeah, yeah. And the thing that excites me about the fact that Go is when I started working on it, 
I, I just loved Go for how easy it was to do things. I didn't appreciate like everything that would come from it along the lines, but by writing it in Go, it's become so incredibly easy for people to contribute and learn, which I think is the hardest problem with WebRTC right now is I'm sure a lot of people are listening right now and they thought, oh, I thought WebRTC was just so I can do video between a browser. You don't appreciate everything that's happening, but I'm hoping because it's in Go, you can go and like, you know, click through the symbols and look at things and then the ease of deploy. And then the, I think the big one that's going to happen in the future is the security aspects. So like everyone is running C and C++. Like, I think that's really scary to be running that stuff on the public internet. Um, so I still do like C stuff as my day job, but like running address sanitizer and MSAN, like all this stuff, like I constantly make mistakes still, but like go, I, I can sleep well at night knowing that like, I won't find out that every service has been exploited and everyone can see the calls flowing in clear text. Like you, you can't convince me that like someone out there doesn't have a zero day we don't know about with existing <laughs> RTC stuff. One thing that captured my attention was you said that I started uh, with 50 lines of Go code. Mm -hmm. And I was like really impressed, like, you know, for a new protocol implementation, 50 lines. But then I was oh. like thinking, oh, with 50 lines, actually, I was able to bootstrap a lot of projects. Mm -hmm. Like, is, isn't that like interesting that like um, it's not a verbose thing, but you can get a lot of things done very quickly sometimes. Yeah. So the 50 lines was totally cheating. So the 50 lines, basically like how Pion started <laughs> is the magic of like Seago. And I know no one wants mm -hmm. to use like Seago, but like mm -hmm. what I did is all of these like hard protocols like SCTP and SRTP, like I just use Seago to make it happen. And then I slowly rewrote each implementation um, into pure Go. Yeah, it makes sense. That's such a like common case, actually. Like lots of people migrate over from C++ or C with like, you know, if you're migrating from C++, you end up like writing some trampoline functions, but, you know, you just gradually do it. That's how I started to write Go. It's also so much nicer than like, let's wait till we've refactored or rewritten the entire thing to try it. It's like, okay, we can see how this is working and make sure things are, you know, moving smoothly and actually test it all versus the whole rewrite, which is almost always awful. Yeah, and you always you learn so much as well, don't you, by that process? Sean, you you just said like you did it cheating, but actually, you know, I think it totally makes sense to do whatever's necessary, hack away at something because the understanding you get is really the valuable bit. You may not keep any of the code, and actually, sometimes knowing you're going to throw code away really helps with that process because you sort of don't worry about any of the any of the practices or things that we do when we're properly software engineering. You get to not worry about that too much. Does that spirit come easy to you, Sean? Does that part, you know, uh, we were chatting a bit earlier about uh, your background. I'm interested in if that plays a part there. Yeah, no, I think it does. So my, my background was that I don't have any, like, computer science education. So when I was, I left high school and I worked at a VoIP company. And I was lucky enough that they gave me, like, a minimum wage job writing PHP scripts and just kind of hacking things up and learning stuff along the way. Yeah. And also I learned so much via IRC. Like I would sit in Freenode in the PHP and MySQL channels and I would just like beg for answers. And so now I feel for people who are in reverse. Like I, I will never get upset at stupid questions because I know I have pained so many people with my stupid questions, but <laughs> it does come naturally. Like I've been very lucky to grow up with that mindset. Like I was, I was never given like, hey, this is what the problem is and this is how you're going to go do it, go solve it. And I think Go is also the community is really great about that as well. Like people definitely don't fall into that. Like perfect is the enemy of good kind of problem. Like I, th I think with a lot of other languages, people are like, unless it solves every single problem and it's perfect in every way, I refuse to use it. But a lot of Go developers and companies are like, let's solve the problem we have and then we'll go from there. Yeah, I wonder if it's something to do with the fact that it's relatively new, isn't it? The community mm -hmm. is relatively new, so it doesn't have a lot of baggage or history mm -hmm. or legacy that other communities had. And so probably did, does allow us, I think also um, the way that the Go community does issues of diversity and things like that, mm -hmm. making it a, a really inclusive environment. I think maybe for the same reasons, it does the same thing. It's able to take a fresh look and have fresh attitudes at things, it doesn't have all this legacy. So that's really great to hear that whenever um, people that come from other communities say that mm -hmm. about the Go community, I always like to hear it. I wonder if on that front, some of that comes from... I guess, how the people use the languages. Because I'm thinking of like Ruby or JavaScript where people tend to build these big frameworks that literally do everything for you. And you're like, I'm not switching to a framework unless it's doing all this for me. Whereas Go has very much been a, don't use a framework, here are some building blocks, put them together. Like each one does something small, but it's not mm -hmm. going to give you the whole thing. And 
you know, it's kind of in that mindset of like use these building blocks, but you don't actually have to have something that does everything and, you know, that you might want. Yeah. And I, I love that because it encourages intellectual curiosity. It's not like, okay, drop this thing and it just does everything. Like everyone's like, oh, like I'm using this little piece, but maybe I can do it better. So they go and rewrite it and rip it into it. And that's what's been so exciting with Pion. Like we're getting close to a hundred contributors. And I'm like, I think that's my favorite part of the whole thing is the fact that these a hundred people and many of them are first time open source contributors. Like this is, they, they decided like, Hey, this is not, this is a welcoming environment. This is a problem that I can dig into. And they just dove right in and like go like the tooling and everything. Yeah. Just, I, I don't have enough good things to say about like how go encourages people to be curious and get involved. That's great. Was it difficult writing a WebRTC implementation in Go? Or did it sort of naturally fit in some way? There was some stuff that is and was super painful. I think the, the lack of the lack of libraries is, is definitely a hard one. So the big one, um, Go doesn't have a DTLS implementation. So there's no TLS over UDP. So we had to write one. There was no SCTP implementation. There's no ICE implementation. So like it took us probably a year and a half to get to that point. But I don't think that's really a fault of Go. I really love Go's how opinionated it is. It was great to like, I feel as you add more and more people to a project, they all bring their opinions. And it was nice that I could just run Golang CI and be like, no, like there's no discussion. Like this is how it reads. This is how it flows. And that's the end of it. And then we go argue about things that are actually important. Like I think humans love to argue. They love to have their things. But no, like, we don't. No, we yeah. don't. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I guess that's, I, I guess I just picked the most dysfunctional group of people then. I don't know what happened. <laughs> Yeah. No, I suspect not. I mean, uh, it definitely uh, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Those are the only things that I have to say, but man, the upsides of Go are just so wonderful. The, the, the safety of the language, the portability. Um, what's so exciting is that I can do Go build and set, you know, my architecture and all of a sudden I can throw my binaries on these little cameras and the WASM stuff. So that's the other cool thing about Pion is that I can write one binary that works both in my, in, and I can deploy it to the web and I can deploy it to my servers and I can deploy it to my set-top boxes. Like there's this one company, Strive, that they do a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer CDN. So if you're like running in an office, if you're sitting in an office building, um, why are you downloading the same video file multiple times? Like you should download that video file once and then you should distribute it to all your coworkers. And so they have one code base and it targets Android, iOS, web, servers. Like it's amazing like that you have this amount of like the amount of things you can target. And it, it feels natural to me. Like I, I'm not frustrated using another place, like using it, not just on my servers. So yeah, I guess I'm, I'm probably preaching the choir. If you're listening to this show, you probably already love Go, so I don't need to sell it. <laughs> I like to think that we accidentally get onto some people's playlists and, mm -hmm. you know, they're too lazy to get up and change yeah. it. <laughs> so yeah, to those people, welcome, you know, relax, enjoy yourself. You, you, you're in for a, quite a ride. Yeah. So it's really interesting then. So let's talk a bit more about the use cases because, <laughs> you know, like you say, WebRTC kind of do think of video and audio mm -hmm. chat and things, but are you limited to the kind of data that you can transfer in this way? Not at all. Like you, so WebRTC allows you to has, kind of has two distinct things it can transport. It can transport media, which is like the audio and video, but they can also transport data and the data you can do all these interesting things like you can do out of order transfer. So like if you're doing like a, a video game, you don't want to do that head aligned blocking. Like you don't care like where the player was three seconds ago. You only want the latest packets. And since it's over UDP, you can conditionally say, okay, deliver my port, my packets out of order to make them glossy. So you get the highest performance possible. And so you can just send this binary data and have all these interesting attributes. And because of this data channels app thing that you can do, um, I see all these interesting use cases. The one that I, I really want to see take off in people like doing ops and stuff like that is getting rid of the Bastion server. So, you know, if, if you're a small company, you probably run like an SSH server sitting on the outside of your network. You jump into that and then you jump into your internal things. Um, but with WebRTC, what you can do is you can do that temporary hole and then you could just have all of your servers inside running WebRTC, and then you can hook to them directly without running a VPN, without punching a temporary hole, because it has all these attributes of NAT traversal, which I think is super powerful. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see like what this can do to like, if I want two computers to talk to each other, they don't need to have public IPs. I can talk to each other without any kind of direct communication. Yeah. I really can't wait to 
play with this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it does have that hackability sort of mm-hmm. feel to yeah. it, doesn't it? Yeah. How does it compare with technology like WebSockets, for example, where you've got the yeah. browser making mm-hmm. a connection to a long running connection, essentially? The WebSockets has two problems. One is the headline blocking. So since it's over TCP, like it's lossless. So if you're like sending something that's large, like you're going to incur that penalty that like as you do the retransmissions, it's going to slow things down. And then the WebSockets also require it's, it's TCP. So it has to, you have to be communicating with something that's directly addressable. Like I, if I'm using t- WebSockets, like I have to connect to a public IP address. I have to be in the same network. Um, but beyond that, like you can emulate web, like using in the browser, using data channels and WebSockets feels exactly the same. You just call dot send and you send some stuff and it just magically shows up on the other end. So as like an end user, you don't really care. It doesn't really matter. But as like a hacker and doing stuff underneath, like it's, there's a crazy amount of power. Um, the one that I, I shared in the GoTime channel, that's one of my favorites is the cloud game. So someone went and built something where you can play NES games and all these old, like all these Game Boy games and all this stuff. And basically they run an emulator on a server in DigitalOcean and they send all the video frames to you. And then you send all your key press events via data channels back to them. So like you can play like NES games with someone else. You can do multiplayer. You can share your screen. You can persist your game state. Like it's basically the open source version of all these game streaming services coming out. There's one thing I wonder, um, since you mentioned that, you know, there's actually a lot of things to consider in terms of trade-offs and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any like sort of visibility? Are there any debugging tools or what's the, you know, good way to start maybe debugging or like, you know, what do you have in terms of tools, at least at this point? That's a tough one. I think that's probably the biggest problem with WebRTC right now is like the education and the debuggability. So for me, like what I do most of the time is I sit with Wireshark, I grab packet captures, and then I export like the the actual keys from Pion. So like if Pion's connecting the browser, like you have like your TLS connection, I export those and I decrypt the packets. But for a lot of people, like Pion is the kind of the way they debug, because you can't really debug what's happening browser to browser. But if you do Pion to browser, I can just print the stuff that comes out. Because with Pion, the way it works is you just get access to the video bytes directly. So like instead of you know getting like this on-track event and putting in a DOM element, you just get a stream of raw H264 or VP8 or something like that. So in my opinion, like Pion is your best debugging tool because it like decouples everything and gives you the ability to peek and poke and play with things. And then it's great also for like the load testing and the like attacking your own servers and figuring out where your rough points are. Because you can spin up, like before people would spin up, you know, 10,000 browsers to simulate like what load for WebRTC service would look like. But now they can spin up 10,000 little Go processes that send pre-canned video. Yeah. Even like from the perspective of learning, uh, that would be useful for mm-hmm. lots of people to, you know, just begin looking at. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to check them out. Thanks. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's the thing I want to encourage most out of this is that Pion isn't like, it's a, it's an idea. It's not like a single software project, but it's like, I want to get people into it. I want to teach them that like peer to peer as possible. Decentralization is cool, both from the resiliency it brings to the internet and for what people can build. And I want, I want people to learn. I want people to get excited and just, I don't know, bring a little joy to their lives. I think that's great. I love these kinds of projects as well because they they're sort of born out of either a love for something or uh, a real problem that you have that you want to solve. Mm-hmm. And they're always the best projects, I think, when you see um, open source projects that are addressing something real or um, you know built with that sort of passion. You can always tell compared mm-hmm. to where we've kind of set out to try and deliver a package. Mm-hmm. And imagine something, you know, so I always think that's always worth pointing out. And any of these projects are always like, sometimes, I mean, some, some people might consider the WebRTC API to be quite a boring read. But of course, and I did read through it, and it is not an easy uh, thing to read. So having this abstraction as someone that likes to play with uh, different technologies and, and build little things is is kind of great. So thank you very much for starting the project and, and continuing your sort of support and involvement, Sean. Yeah, and I, for me, like the, the Pion was born out of frustration with, at the time, like there's like the C++ implementation. So 
when WebRTC kind of came around, I wasn't involved, so this is all anecdotes, what I've heard from other people, is that Google wanted to bring WebRTC to the browser without plugins. And so they went and bought this company called Gips, and they went and bought on too. So they like acquired all of these like very great, like very battle-tested software stacks, and they put them in the browser. Um, the hard part about if I don't know if, if you've built Chromium, like you know, it's like a it's a very painful process. There's all these proprietary build systems, like it's not what people are used to. And WebRTC kind of suffers from the same thing. So with Python, my goal was also like it's one go get away, which is another fantastic thing about Go is there's not like if you want to play with something, it's one go get. It doesn't matter what platform you're running. There's no you know install these libraries. There's no play with all this. It's like how can you get stuff into people's hands? So that's that's where the passion originally came from. But then, yeah, it, now the passion is like, how can I get as many people using WebRTC? How can I get as many people into the system and have them owning their projects and getting them excited? The one go get thing is, I feel like it's something people don't emphasize enough in the sense that, like, I see people all the time who are like, if you write blogs, you need to put dates on them because, you know, it goes out of date really quickly. And I think a lot of them come from backgrounds like JavaScript or something where, just trying to install something all of a sudden won't work anymore. And you're like, I don't know why it's just not working. Whereas like you said, like with GoGet and everything else, they all tend to work to the point that it's like, I really don't need to date most of these things because, you know, they shouldn't break. Is you know, unless you're using like a third party library and they make breaking changes or release a major version or something. But that stuff tends to be pretty rare compared to other languages where that is more problematic. Or like you said, they have like really big build processes where so many different things can go wrong. I think I talked to, maybe I told you about it once, Matt, where I was working on a project where basically something in Brew got removed, at, like Homebrew for installing. And like as a result, nobody on the team could rebuild like on a fresh laptop the, like, to get everything up to, to spec because we just couldn't get some certain library or something. And like it got to the point where like we ended up having to do a bunch of work to sort of, you know, move a bunch of things to upgrade stuff because of that. And it's like, that's a really painful process. So like having those complicated build processes is a challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think also it's it's like that broken windows thing where even like a lot of people will say like, oh, yeah, like there's this kind of arrogance. They're like, I don't care about new developers. I only I only want seasoned developers to come use my project because I don't really care. Like, I you know, this is like a full time job and blah, blah, blah. Like, I think that's what a lot of these projects suffer from. But even if a seasoned developer comes and uses your product, if it's hard to use and hard to set up, like it just gets people in an awful mindset. You know, you just start off using my thing upset, which I never want. Like, I want people to be like, I, I had a wonderful Tuesday afternoon playing with WebRTC. <laughs> a good way to put that is they want to spend their time learning WebRTC, not yeah. figuring out how to install software, which they probably already figured out a million times before. Even if they're seasoned, they figured it out and they don't, mm -hmm. like, nobody enjoys that. And just to be clear, you can do uh, this on any day of the week, can't you, Sean? <laughs> No, Tuesdays only. Tuesday afternoon only. Okay. Tuesday afternoon, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's quite an interesting way of rate limiting your code. <laughs> yeah. yeah no, it's got it's a whole like... build process that tears down the whole repo. Everything just disappears, then it comes yeah. back up again. Practical AI is a weekly podcast that's making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. If the world of AI affects your daily life, this show is for you. From the practitioner wanting to keep up with the latest tools and trends. Spacey is really a library that lets you put together a whole NLP pipeline of the different things you might want to do um, and extract from your text. You know, you're not just interested in predicting one thing. You might want to read in your text. You want to find the individual sentences. You want to find out which concepts are mentioned in the text, like which person names, organizations, dates. And then you also maybe want to predict something about like what's in the text. To the AI curious, trying to understand the concepts at play and their implications on our lives. Would you rather be spending your time improving your blue score by 0.1 on French to English? Or would you rather have a breakthrough on kind of that under-resourced language that, by the way, has 350 million people using it in underprivileged areas around the world? Here's your expert hosts. My name is Chris Benson. I am a principal AI strategist at Lockheed Martin. And with me, as always, is Daniel Whitenack, a data scientist with SIL International. Hey, how's it going today, Daniel? Please listen to a recent episode and subscribe today. We'd love to have you as a listener. 
that's interesting. I think other projects could learn that lesson about the developer experience. And it's um, there's a few little tricks you can do in Go. Thing I like doing them like putting the test code in a separate package so that you are accessing your package from the outside, it seems, in your test code. So when you do that, you get a kind of uh, feel for your API. You kind of experiencing as your users are going to really experience it. And having that focus, I think, helps every project. And really, Go, I think, because of its minimalism, kind of encourages that. Because if if minimalism's given, then you have to be really selective about what goes in. So then you, you really have to think about it. So just having that sort of restrictive minimalist mindset, I think, does help us. And it's kind of trained, trained us a bit in Go to think like this, obviously people in other languages do the same kinds of things and none of the ideas are really necessarily even original Um, but it did get an early focus and I think you can see signs of that. That's my biggest fear with Go 10 years down the line that it's so easy to add things but it's impossible to remove things so I, I hope that Go stays keeps that like minimalism because I think like above the Go I love that like the Go community you write code bases you throw them away you rewrite you do new things but like the line where Go starts, like you, you can't change that forever. That's like an unbreakable contract. So I hope we keep that minimalism in the language and then allow the explosion of crazy ideas outside of it. Right. Yes. So earlier you talked about nat traversal and mm-hmm. you know connecting to each other. So that very first thing where they like tell each other IP addresses or I assume mm-hmm. it's IPs. I'm not sure. Whatever yeah. you know, addresses. How do they communicate that sort of thing? Like, how does this whole process get kicked off? Can we get into the details of that? Yeah, yeah. So what most people do, they call it signaling. And it's two peers. They need to know the the bare minimum details of each other. And so what most people, they'll run like a server up in the cloud, just like a little WebSocket server. And so you send up your details, I send up my details, and they get sent to each other. So there's like this little like exchange. And you can do signaling like via... Any protocol, like it's basically, I'm just sending a blob of key value pairs that say like, this is my IP, these are the codecs I support, and that's it. So it's just like, how do I get the minimum amount of information to each other? And then, so I've seen people that do signaling via WebSockets, I've seen people do signaling via IPFS, I've seen signaling via HTTP. Like it's, you can do really whatever you want. So once you exchange that amount of details, you then go into this next step, which is like a full protocol called ICE, or internet connectivity exchange, where you, I have like my list of details from this, from that like minimal blob that we've exchanged. And then we kind of just hit each other with pings and pongs to find the best route. So like when you're doing that pings and pongs and stuff, is it, I assume it's trying to find like the quickest connection in the sense that like, if you and I are on a local network, it'll try to use that instead of going out to the web, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like the really cool magic about it because there's also other attributes like what if we're on the local connection, but our local connection has a bunch of packet loss, but our web connection is actually better. Like, so ICE can evaluate and say like, oh, like, even though this connected faster, maybe I want to use this one. And then ICE also allows you to switch what they call candidate pairs at any time. So let's say me and you are talking via Wi-Fi and then I walk outside. I need to switch the IP address I talked to you on. I now need to switch to cellular. And then when I walk back inside, I switch to Wi-Fi. Like it does, it has all of these really cool things where it can measure like the network cost, it can measure the round trip time and all these interesting attributes to figure out like what's the best candidate pair for this call. That's amazing, isn't it? That's brilliant. Yeah. And does Pion do this? Yes. Pion, basically, I just went and implemented a spec, which made it really easy. Like, this is all magic that, that has existed in WebEx and Skype and everyone else. Like, everyone's doing this. So I got, I'm lucky I get to just go to the IETF and, and read the plain text and I'm done. <laughs> yeah, you've kind of unlocked this, though, really, for the Go community. Because I wouldn't, even if I just implemented the bits I, I needed, this isn't the kind of problem that you really have a chance in hell, really, of being able to... <laughs> just build and each person solve it. It's not like a router. Yeah, no, and it's fun because different companies have come and different individuals have come and brought like their little improvements. So like the first ICE implementation was super rudimentary. Like it said, like whoever connected first, that's what we pick. But then now like people now like people define like how long they're willing to wait for like an internet route compared to a to compared to a land route. Like all these different rules. Um, it's like how can you build this best ICE agent? implementation possible when you were talking about connections that sort of you know you jump from like your wi-fi to your cell network and stuff 
So does that mean that's probably the type of technology that's being used behind like Google Fi, that sort of thing? Or like, does that seem like a good use case for that? Or would that be a bad? I, I know that you can't say for sure what they're using. but Oh, yeah. No, I have no idea. I think Google Fi is probably a level lower. So I know like Duo and stuff like that is definitely using this. Like, because Duo is just WebRTC and Hangouts is just WebRTC. But I think Fi is probably like a layer lower. I know nothing about electronics or, or any of that stuff. So I'm just a simple software engineer. <laughs> yeah, I think it's more of like an L2 type of like switch. Yeah, that's my favorite part of WebRTC is the reactivity of it. Like the being able to choose like what's the best bit rate or what's the best connection route. It's all about like, that's what I, I like to picture in my head, like the little like decentralization thing where it shows like a, a graph and like picking the best route to talk to two, between two people. Yeah, it's nice that it does that for you. But what's yeah. that interface like for a Go programmer? Mm -hmm. How do you access that kind of capability? What does it literally look like in code? Yeah, so for WebRTC itself, all you do is you generate that like bootstrap blob and you basically call like create offer and I send my offer to the other side and then the other side calls create answer and it sends the answer back and you're done. Like you now have a full peer-to-peer -peer communication that does all the things. But we also expose all of the underlying technologies as their own individual packages. So this ICE thing, um, it just implements, I think it's an IO reader, writer, closer. And so I push on, I like push on a list of my re remote's IP addresses and I, put, and I send my remote a list of my IP addresses and then they just find each other. And that's it. And then like you can, you can slap that in front of anything. So... I forget, I know some people like have slapped VPNs on it. So WireGuard, um, someone built an implementation they call it, they called Wire WG VPN. If you get a chance, go look on the awesome Pi on repo. But they took the Go implementation of WireGuard and married it with ICE, and now you have a nat traversing WireGuard implementation. So in terms of like packages, um, what is sort of like an application developer's responsibility in terms hmm. of, let's say, like the buffer size or like what, what are some of the points of uh, left for optimization? So right now, what you do is you listen for data channels, you listen for like the back pressure. So since it's like an, since it's like an async protocol, like you can send, you can call like, you know, pure connection dot send and send it a gigabyte and then it'll slowly make sure that data gets to the other side. But what you do is is then WebRTC has this callback that says like, I forget the, the exact name, but basically you listen for the back pressure and it says like, okay, I'm done sending everything you've requested that I send, go ahead and send more. And then WebRTC also has an API called get stats where you can pull and like see on the quality of the connection. You can be like, hey, this is like the average bandwidth between you and that other peer. So you can choose like what you want to do. Yeah, so on the fly, you optimize things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah, and so the, the other nice thing about WebRTC, or I think some people are frustrated by, is the Pions implementation. We took the the like WebRTC API that's dictated by the browser. And so the API isn't very Go idiomatic. Like it's very like callback heavy. It's very It feels very JavaScript, but it has two benefits. Like one is if you're already comfortable with writing WebRTC in the browser, you can go use Pion and like you feel very comfortable. And two, we learn from all of the research and all of the like the hard lessons that people learned writing that API. Like I think it's so easy to jump in and build an API, but to have an API that has 10 years of experience in the browser, like we got a lot of stuff for free because all of a sudden like someone comes to me like, I have this crazy edge case I need to solve. I'm like, well, WebRTC luckily solves it in the corner with this knob. And I would have never anticipated that. I would have painted myself into a corner. That's really interesting, yeah. Because I hear a lot the advice of don't copy other languages if you're doing a port mm. or something. But yeah, that's actually quite a compelling uh, thing to think about, I think, when people are forced to make that decision. Yeah, yeah I've, I've worked on a lot of projects with like multiple language support. And it always turns out to be the, like the biggest, I think, advantage. Like you should, you can easily see the feature parity and all these like edge case, like utility libraries and so on to build. And it's also somewhat easier to, I think, track progress. Uh, you know, if there's a new API coming up, you can just basically go and like implement it in the other language. So there's definitely some advantages. It's also like if you happen to have some sort of bug or something, sometimes somebody who's worked on something similar in another language can more easily jump into your code and sort of help out. Because like there's been several projects I've seen, I think like Stripe's an example where their API libraries tend to be very similar across languages, even if it's not necessarily the most idiomatic for that language. And at times it's frustrating and at other times it's very helpful because it's like, okay, I feel at home because I've used it in this other language before. So like I can see the arguments from both sides and I definitely think that they're 
is an argument to be made for like keeping the same design that's there if those you know benefits are going to be useful. And listen to this magic. So Weber, since Pion, like it implements, it does the WASM. So you write, if you call like, you know, create peer connection and create offer, create answer. You, when you compile to WASM, it basically just outputting the JavaScript that runs in the browser. It lets me write my Go code, but then evaluate against the browser's implementation. So I can check does Pion's pure Go implementation behave exactly the same as Pion that then compiles and runs in the browser. So it allows me to like ensure that I implement WebRTC the same way as the browser does, but in my pure Go implementation. That's great. Talking about that compliance, um, what is what is the overall story like? Is it you run a bunch of like you convert them into unit tests and compare the results, um, or what else do you do? So the nice thing about WebRTC is it's 100% standardized. So you just go to the IATF and you look at the specs and you implement them. So I what I do right now is I run Pion against Chromium. I run Pion against Pion. And then we have all those individual parts. Like I think when, when you say WebRTC, like I think that there's very little new stuff that WebRTC adds. WebRTC is basically hooking all of these existing technologies. So if you can go prove that ICE and SCTP and RTP works right, there's really not much to do in WebRTC. Like I think the WebRTC package of Pion is probably one of the least complicated parts. In some cases, some projects uh, usually have some sort of like a testing, you know, binary, mm -hmm. which, you know, makes a call against your peer, just yes. runs, you know, some of the like basic functionality and then checks the responses for compliance. Mm -hmm. I, I was wondering if WebRTC has something similar. Unfortunately not. So at the last, we were going to do this at the IETF in Vancouver. Tim Panton had organized this thing where we were going to, we, all the WebRTC implementations were going to sit down at a table and we were going to write like a, like a little test suite that would run implementations against each other. And it'll make it easier for people in the future to write new implementations. Cause like someone's trying to write an Erlang one, someone's trying to write, you know, a Ruby one, like they should be able to come and write a new implementation. But unfortunately, the whole coronavirus thing, like the IETF got canceled and we, it didn't happen. But no, it's, it's something I definitely want to do because there's a lot of detective work that went into writing, into doing Pion because um, there's a lot of things that are specified, but there's a lot of things that are just, you know, edge cases in the Chromium code base. And you look and it's just like, you know, slash, slash, do this because X. And it's not saved or written anywhere else. <laughs> It's a shame that conference got cancelled. It's a shame that there isn't a way to mm -hmm. somehow communicate remotely. Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Someone needs to get and build something for that, I think. Yeah. I think this is one of the cases where you actually want to sit on the same table yeah. and, you know, right. you just really need that in-person connection. Yeah. <laughs> I think the other thing is that as the longer I've been doing this, the more I appreciate that it's all about personalities and relationships and emotions because if i go in and say like pion is the best like this is how it should work like it's gonna irritate a bunch of people and we're not gonna be willing to work together but at the same time if i let someone else come and do that then like it'll hurt whatever it's see so it's all about like coming together and like finding out like what compromises are we willing to make like what technical compromises are we willing to make for the sake of relationships which ones are we not willing to make and like how do we get the middle ground because like emotions are so tightly coupled with like what we build Open source in general is like a challenge in that front. And it, mm -hmm. there are times where I'm amazed that certain projects survived, given that like Linux is a pretty <laughs> notorious one in the sense <laughs> that, you know, like there were certain people who are very opinionated is how I'll put it. And I don't know if that would work nowadays. Like I just, I feel like people just go find another project and be like, I'm not going to mess with this, which is, I'm not trying to say anything bad or anyway, you know, anything like that. I'm yeah. just... It's, it's interesting that now that we have a lot more open source stuff and it's a lot more common that it almost feels like it's a completely different ballgame as to how you manage it and managing that community. And it's probably improved things in a lot of ways and gotten a lot more perspective that wasn't there. And I think we are better in terms of like identifying these issues in the beginning. So like Linux wouldn't be this successful probably if people were paying attention to these type of issues back then. So there's definitely some sort of like change uh, people just don't, you know, necessarily support a project if they see that, like, the, the the leadership in the project is, you know, really toxic. Yeah, I don't think software matters that much. At the end of the day, like, mm -hmm. every project is going to come and go. Someday Linux won't matter. Someday Pion won't matter. But, mm -hmm. like, people's emotions, like, that's their entire life. And, like, I want 
people to be happy and I want people to come in and like, and feel good about what they've done. So yeah, I'm totally willing to make technical compromises in this for people's emotions because it, it matters more to me than, you know, a couple lines of code. We can write more unit tests. We can add more linters, but it's not worth, you know, being a jerk. <laughs> That's well said. Um, yeah. it, it's a shame that WebRTC isn't really a topic for new programmers to jump into uh and, and maybe you'll tell me i'm wrong mm-hmm. because i think that that sort of attitude where you're able to foster this community of that is inclusive like you've been talking about that helps people and sort of you know doesn't just treat people like uh, some weird remote resource or something mm-hmm. i think that's great but is it a good project for people that are new to programming to to come and look at certainly to use i suppose but what about contributing to the project yeah so there is a huge backlog of problems that need to be improved. And I think the other one that I've, I encourage people to do more is like take Pion and go build something with it. Like everyone, like, what are you passionate? Because I think projects are successful open source when they're built with passion, because that that's what makes you want to work on it on a Thursday night compared to like, just, you know, going and playing video games or watching a movie like you. So maybe you're not interested in contributing to Pion, but go build something with Pion. If, if you tell me about it, I will spam Twitter, Hacker News, Reddit, Slack with it. Like I will promote your project for you because, because I want Pion to be successful. I want to show people that Pion incur, lets people build things. So I'm much happier seeing all, everyone with all their little projects than thousands of programmers to send on Pion. But I'd love to have you as well. Like, please like come contribute like everything. No conversation occurs in private channels. Everything's on GitHub, everything. I try to make it as easy as possible to get involved. Um, so that's that's like my elevator pitch on like new programmers. And well, that's the reason I'm here, why I was annoying you via email at one in the morning. Like I'm just desperately trying to get into, you know, I've, I've had a lot of luck getting people to talk to me in the WebRTC community, but in the Go community, I haven't had as much luck because WebRTC isn't, isn't hot right now. Like if it's much easier, like if I was doing something with like Kubernetes or DevOps or something like that, I'm sure I could get on to more conferences, but I have not had any luck with WebRTC. But this is this is the year that I annoy everyone and break in. You'd think it would get more popular now that I feel like like pair programming applications and that sort mm-hmm. of thing are going to take, they're going to almost have to take off a little bit more because there's not great mm-hmm. options. At least it doesn't feel like there's great options for a lot of this stuff. I did have a question when you were talking about like Matt was asking about beginners getting involved. I noticed that your a lot of your repos have like a difficulty um, tag that you put on all your your issues. Mm-hmm. Has that been hard to manage? And like, how has that helped as far as like allowing people to get involved? I don't think it's really helped that much. I haven't seen a lot of people like, I think it's really hard to just go to a random issue and pick it because you're not passionate about the project. Like, I, I think a lot of people, it's pretty idealistic to think like, I want today I'm going to sit down and I'm going to get involved because I want to get involved. I think you have to like figure out like what is the itch you're trying to scratch because that's the only thing that's going to motivate you in the end. Like, there's no reward at the end of this. Like, you're not getting paid. You're not like it. Totally has to come from your own personal happiness. So I, I I tried that and I do it a little bit, but I haven't seen it pay off that much. One of the things I think I think Mark did with Buffalo was I think he had people doing documentation type stuff mm-hmm. just because I think it was people who were learning Buffalo and, and building stuff with it. Sort of like mm-hmm. you said, like you want to build stuff with it first. And as things were less clear to them or they got confused, they'd sort of ask questions in the Slack or whatever it was. And as that sort of got, you know, meshed out or or hashed out and they actually got a, you know, good good idea of what the description should look like, then it'd be like, okay, well, why don't you submit an issue that, you know, has this documentation improved a little bit? That way you can get involved. And it's not necessarily code, but it's still helping the project just as much. And it sort of gets you involved in that process and everything. And I think that that can help, but I don't know, like, I definitely don't know the right way to get in developers involved in a project because that's a challenging thing to do. No, I'm, I'm going to have to pick Mark's brain on that because I'm trying to do that right now. Like I give people access to the wiki and I say, go edit it. And, but it's tough because it's async. So if I don't, if I'm not there to give immediate feedback and say like, great job, that's right. I lose them. So like I have, I've had at least three, four people start this whole documentation push. They're learning WebRTC. And I'm gone for 24 hours because I've got work or family stuff going on. And, and that green circle stays gray forever. Like, it's, it's tough to keep people. Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, one thing that works sometimes is have to, like, weekly meetings. Just kind of, like, if you have time to mm-hmm. go over. Oh, these are, like, the certain things that we are thinking about. So, like, people thinker and, you know, brainstorm about certain things. Everybody get their, like, point of, you know, action items and 
just go and do but it requires time and you know it has to be consistent and you're creating that like you know support system and like you can't really take it away so it's just really it's up to the community and how much time you have that's a fantastic idea i think i'm gonna do that like i'm gonna schedule like hey like once every two weeks here's an hour that i'm just gonna be in hangouts and people just join and talk about what's important to them because mm-hmm. I, I think that's like what we a big thing that's been lacking right now with the project is like People are able to do their single track things that they're excited about, but it's really hard to build multi-person momentum. Hi there, this is John Calhoun, one of your GoTime panelists. When I'm not working on GoTime, I create programming courses that help developers level up their Go skills. And one of my more recent courses, Algorithms with Go, is live, and I wanted to invite you to check it out. So it's completely free, and in it we explore how algorithms and data structures work, as well as how to actually implement them in Go code. So if you've ever had an interest in learning about algorithms or data structures, or if you felt like you understand them conceptually but just couldn't nail down that coding part, this course is going to be great for you. We actually dive into coding everything, we work on practice problems, and it's a lot of fun. You can sign up completely free at algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. Again, that's algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. And don't forget that last slash gotime bit. It helps me keep track of how you found out about the course so that gotime gets credit for referring you. Thanks for listening. We've said a lot of very popular things, I'm sure, today, Sean, but it's time for our regular slot of the show. So sit down, everyone, if you're, <laughs> you know, stood up, just relax or stay stood up. I don't, just do whatever you're going to do. Uh, it's time for Unpopular Opinion. Unpopular Opinion. I actually think you should probably leave. All right, Sean, so do you have anything unpopular to say? I think, and I don't know how much people are going to care, but the one that always starts flame wars is I think that the GPL is a freedom-restricting license. And oh, here, really? Yes. Here's, here's the one that if people care. So I think that I get the argument that I should use my power to ensure that someone else keeps their freedom. But at the same time, it's just like the act of taking away someone's autonomy like that's freedom removing in the first place. So I, I've never got it. Like I, this is like a constant argument and hopefully this is exciting enough for your audience, but that's the one I like to bicker with people about because I'm a big free software kind of guy. Like I totally, and it ties up with getting people involved, but I feel very strongly about like what uh, GNU is trying to do and like encourage individual ownership and that we shouldn't have, you know, these giant companies own all the software. But at the same time, man, like the GPL is a very frustrating, tenuous cop- topic for me. So that's that's the one if, if we wanted to argue about. That's the one that I'll get fired up and irritate people over. What license did you choose for Pion? MIT. And so why was that? What, what led to that? For me, I think that people rise, like if someone's going to do something bad, they're going to do it no matter what. So even if I do the GPL, someone's going to break the GPL and they're going to distribute stuff and they're going to cheat the system and there's nothing I can do to prevent it. It's the same way I see that like fraud, like you can add thousands of rules, but bad people are going to be bad, but I want to encourage good people to be good. So I say like, Hey, you have the full freedom to go do what you want. And if you don't want to contribute back, that's fine. If you don't want to share what you've done, that's fine. But I want to like, there's so many programmers that are using it and they're able to get it approved because they can use it. Like, I think that's what it was important to me. It's like, you, you can add rail guards and try to make people better, but at the end of the day, people are going to be who they are. So what if in a hypothetical situation, then a, a company took Pion and it was a startup and it just, they built some phenomenal software that just kind of went crazy. Uh, it became a unicorn, you know, people making a lot of money on this technology. How would that feel for you? Um, it's already happening. There's a couple big users of Pion that are using it. 
Um, and some are coming out pretty soon, actually. And these are like, you know, billion dollar companies with their big things. And like, you know, I, w- I wish I could get hired and get paid, you know, a million dollars to be a principal engineer there. But um, that's just not the way it works. I think for me, like I'm going to come and go like someday I will not be alive anymore. And was it really worth it? Like I, I would rather see the total good in the world increased, even if I miss out on something. Like, yeah, I don't know. It is what it is. And like if I hadn't done the GPL, like I would I'd much rather, rather have the unicorn making people's lives better than not exist at all. Now, I think I would be hurt if I found out that the unicorn was like putting people in cages. Then I'd probably be like, man, I think I made the world a worse place. But again, my argument comes back to like, what can I really do? Like, they're going to do it no matter what. Like, people are going to do the wrong thing. I can help the good people, but I, I can't prevent the bad people. I think that's something that's hard, though, because we tend to focus on the bad versus mm-hmm. like just all sorts of cases where you just focus on the potentially bad things people can do and how to prevent it. Mm. And I see this all the time with stuff where like to give you an example. Um, so I do, I have like go courses and some of the things that are sometimes challenging is like some people will try to buy, download everything and then immediately ask for a refund. So you're like, okay, do I get rid of the refund policy because of that? Or do I add Mm. some clause to it? That's like, if you do this, then you don't get a refund. But then overall you're like, well, then that means that anybody else who's a legitimate person doesn't, like, you know, they don't want to read through this clause mm-hmm. of like when they, what it applies, what doesn't. So I'm just like, all right, at the end of the day, it's probably better off just to just say the refund's there or whatever. And those bad people, I just have to ignore them. And it sucks because when it does happen, you you feel frustrated and you're annoyed and everything else. But at the end of the day, like you said, it, you can't focus on that because they're probably going to do it or find some way to do it. Because even if you don't give them a refund, they'll probably do a chargeback or something. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, like you said, they'll either commit fraud or something. There's no way to stop that. So just focusing on it is probably not worth your effort. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the right answer. I guess at the end of the day, like you just have to find how to, you know, what's the total happiness you can extra, you can do out of this day. And like, for me, I get my happiness out of you know, power, empowering the good people. Yeah, the the really strange version of this is where you end up with software that is uh, where they've done extra work to make the software worse for some people. <laughs> and it's a kind of a crazy thing that it makes sense because you think, of course, well, there's a light package that's free and it's limited. You can't do as much with it. And then you pay to unlock more features or whatever. But it is a very strange thing that we are doing, which is putting effort in to making it worse. Yeah, I do hear arguments that like, for a DRM, it's worth having the basics, like saying, like, go, go get out your manual and type in the seventh letter of the ninth paragraph. But it's not, it's not worth doing the crazy DRM because you, you just can't beat it. You can beat the the ten year olds who are sharing the game between each other, but you can't beat, you know, the twenty five year old who's going to sit and reverse engineer and beat it no matter what. You can't beat them, but you can beat the easy ones. I don't know. So. We probably should have asked this earlier. Specifically, what about the GPL is it that you don't like? I guess, like, what what specifically does it force people to do that they... Because I'm guessing not all the listeners have read the GPL or mm-hmm. that familiar with it. That if you make changes to the software, and you can't distribute those, like, you have to distribute the source code. And and I've seen that even go further with the Afero GPL, where if you are hosting something and someone, someone uses your service, they have to have access to that service. But... A part of me is like, I'm really excited. Like, I don't think it's worth it because I think people will then not build stuff with Pi on. Like, it'll stop ideas from being built. So I would rather see people go do that because and go build something exciting. And then I think they'll do the right thing. I think the one that, that encouraged me was kind of like John Carmack's approach to open source where he built, you know, Doom and Wolfenstein 3D. And then he kind of just threw the source code over the wall to encourage people to learn and like, and make things better like that's that's my outlook on it is just give people the freedom to do what they want to do and that's going to bring up their best selves and so that's like that, that's my issue with the gpl and the, and the other one is just i'm not a big fan of restraints just the idea that you have this big license is frustrating to me like i think that that encourages bureaucracy and that encourages like more structure it's not helping software developers it's not helping people like it's just it's encouraging these giant systems that I don't not really benefiting from. Well, like you said before, I feel like it's also one of those when you're a small person, like if you're a big org, you can definitely tell which license is what you have to do when you get it. But if you're like an individual developer and you don't really know for sure, I feel like, like you said, it can scare them off because they don't have the resources to actually figure out, am I okay doing this or not? They Mm -hmm. definitely don't have the money to like go to court and defend themselves. 
or anything like that. So they're just like, I got to skip this because I'm not really sure what this you know, clause yeah. in the GPL means or how it applies to my stuff. Yeah. And that's the same why I don't, I'm against patents as well, because patents, I think, only protect the big players. You know, the big players amass these big war chests. And if you're a little guy, like they come to you and say, hey, sell to me or I'm going to crush you. And so I think the GPL is the kind of in the same way. Like it, it's, it's the right intention. But like all of these systems do is they encourage people. They help the big players. So the big one that I heard is like with in the EU, like when we're adding all these protections, there's a reason that these big companies are encouraging it because now it's building up their moat. So I can't go compete with, you know, a big company that's doing, you know, X because they've built up this big moat and there's all this regulation. So like I sat down and I, and I really want to do the right thing. Like I'm adding regulation because I believe I'm making people's lives better. But at the end of the day, like the regulation is just abused by people that with malevolent intent and you can't beat them. Like they're going to, whatever system you make, they're going to abuse. So it's better not to have it at all. <laughs> yeah. Even for large companies, GPL is such a scary thing because like, it's like basically like software patents. Mm -hmm. uh, you keep it as a leverage yeah. to sue another company in case you need to sue them or, you know, for some other reason, because you want to destroy their, your, their mm -hmm. business or something. Yeah, I, I'm with you on patents and stuff. Um, I don't know if I'd advocate to abolish all laws, which seems to be what you're suggesting. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I'm not. But I think where I come down, I am all for laws that encourage community ownership and direct representation. But anything that empowers people with war chests and large organizations, I am totally against. Um, that's like a bigger ideological conversation, but that's like a lot of my decisions are made off of that. Like, how can I empower the little person and how can I make sure that they, like, that's that's what drives everything, is how do I encourage individuals to live a happy life? Because I think the U.S. was the best when there was more small businesses. Like, you look back at, you know, and, like, they talked in, like, the 40s or the 70s, like, you had more small businesses and that, like, directly ties to, like, people who had better lives because of that. Mm. But, yeah, that's, that's my two cents. Lovely. <laughs> I can't imagine like publishing any of my open source projects if they were expect like Google was telling me to, mm -hmm. you know, use GPL. Mm -hmm. Because um, if I'm using MIT or a Apache 2, as soon as I leave, I still can take it and convert it into a business or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't own the IP, which is also a ridiculous thing in the US that like, if you're working for a company, the company owns the IP, not you uh, as the main contributor. And on plus, like on top of that, if it's been... Uh, licensed as GPL, then Google just basically owns me mm -hmm. until the end of my you know life. Uh, so that doesn't really you know give individuals any any power mm -hmm. at all. That one's yeah. also so weird in the sense that, like, if you do it on company time or company property, it's theirs. But if you can somehow prove that it was on your own laptop on your own time, not using, like, there's all these hoops you have to jump through, and it's like, what person can really defend against Google? Yeah. Exactly, and it's like more extreme than that. Um, in order to have like IP, you have to. It's like stop using all the resources, including talking to people. So you can't really go yeah. and like talk to your coworker about your project mm. if you want to own the IP. Like, well, you know, it's like basically not very practical. Mm. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I understand how that happens inside companies, but it is a shame. Another thing on patents that I've seen, I've written some patents. And uh, one of the things that at some point I found myself in a meeting with a lawyer who was basically saying, other people can essentially just violate this patent, you know, because it's about enforcement. So if no one's going to go after them, then people are kind of free to do it, basically. But you as the you're an author of it. So you definitely have knowledge of this patent. So you absolutely cannot use any <laughs> technology. So there is a kind of penalty to individual developers and individual IP creators. If, if you do write a patent for the company, I always think companies ought to do something extra for people that are contributing to if, if they're doing patents and stuff. But yeah, ideally, we wouldn't have software <laughs> patents. And I think anyone that loves open source, I think you can kind of see that. I think like large companies just kind of like give this grants, which is like $5,000 or $10,000. Mm. And you know, like there's all these like lawyers, you just basically come up with an idea to the lawyer and lawyer just converts it into like 30 page patent. They submit it. If it actually, it is mad. Yeah. This like <laughs> this entire system is just so broken. You just go into a meeting and it's all for leverage. <laughs> you, know, you literally go into a meeting and somebody's like, what did you do in that project that can be patented? Yeah. Like, it's not like exactly. you come up to somebody and say, we found something novel. It's like people literally like hunt yeah. you down. Like, do you have anything that can be patented? Yeah. And you're like, I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I used paths. Has that been done? Paths? <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm saying that as a joke, but genuinely I have a patent which essentially describes paths. <laughs> well, there's a patent for double clicking, so I would oh, completely yeah. believe that like that would be legitimate. <laughs> yeah, double click. Imagine that. Someone just got in a meeting and gone, what if we click twice? I bet the bloke that invented the click was really annoyed, wasn't he? I mean, Yana's really time. hurting us. Now I can't write software that takes a double click because I know about the patent. Oh, Yana, Ooh, yeah. and everyone listening. I, <laughs> I feel successful because the GoTime effort, the channel on Slack has, has gone off about my GPL comments. So I, I think I did it. That was my only goal. Yes, it turned out to be somewhat popular. And oh. also, you, you also came out of this section looking like a saint, Sean. And that <laughs> oh. is not the purpose of unpopular opinion. <laughs> it's meant to have the opposite effect. I want yeah. to damage careers, not help them. <laughs> oh, no, it took months of preparation. I knew I was going to be cornered. Yeah, exactly. You managed to do that trick you do in an interview when you're yeah. asked for a weakness. And you, go, you know what? I just work too good. I'm I care, too good at work. I care too much, Matt. That's the issue. I care too yeah. much. Yeah, my code's just, if anything, too good and it upsets people. It upsets all the people on the team. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, what you can't say is thieving. Like, have you got a weakness? Um, yeah, thieving. I don't really show up. To, I don't show up to work and I steal stuff from the supply closet. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, it's not really a weakness if you're not getting caught. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all the time we have today. Sean, thank you so much. Please do come back. And anyone interested in uh, Pion, check it out. It's literally github.com slash Pion. That's P-I-O-N. And you can start hacking on it. This has been great. Thank you very much. I'm going to do it. I'm going to wind up the show if unless there's any other bits we want to talk about. Thank you very much for having me. And hopefully, um, if you're interested in, in coming on, like, please jump in our Slack channel, j open up our thing. Like, I want to have you involved and I want to see if we can make either your life or others a little better. So, and thank you very much for having me. I'd love to come back on. And even if it's not about Pion. What is the Slack channel? Um, there is Pion. Just it's hashtag Pion in the Gopher Slack? Yep, exactly. Brilliant. Are you on Twitter, Sean? Yeah, the um, underscore Pion is the Twitter. I don't have a one myself, but it's just me running it. So if you see any opinions on there, you can you can blame me. <laughs> okay, we will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, we'll see you all. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Your next step is to let your voice be heard. Have you used WebRTC in your work or play? Do you think Pion is cool? Going to give it a go? Comment on this episode at changelog.com slash go time slash 127 or simply pop open your show notes, click the discuss on changelog news link and it'll take you where you want to go. Big thanks to Sean Dubois for joining us. Direct any and all praise for this episode toward Matt Ryer, John Calhoun and Yana Dogan. Complaints and corrections should come my way. I'm Jared at changelog.com or at Jared Santo on Twitter. Breakmaster Cylinder produces all of our beats and we're brought to you by awesome people at companies who get it. Thanks again to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. If you and your organization would benefit from speaking directly to the Go community, you should sponsor GoTime. Podcast advertising is highly effective, especially in this current distress when conferences and other events aren't options. Head to changelog.com slash sponsor to learn more. We would love to work with you. That's all for now. We'll talk to you next time.